The theme that we've had today has been we need more South Asians being involved in politics. And I would really double down on that. We do. You know, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, please be more involved in politics. Um, please, you know, support candidates like me. Hello, and welcome back to South Asian Stories, where we hear from South Asians around the world and then cover their identities, successes, failures, and most importantly, stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Arthi Krybeck. Arthi is a Democratic Council member in Glen Rock, New Jersey, as well as a trained neuroscientist. Arthi earned her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 2005 with her research focusing on opiate addiction. In 2016, Arthi ran for Glen Rock's Borough Council in 2017. She won, becoming, becoming the first South Asian elected to the council. Arthi has made climate crisis a priority, leading a successful change for townwide clean energy consumption and a plastic bag ban. Recently, Arthi is running for election to the U.S. House to represent New Jersey's 5th Congressional District against Josh Gottenheimer. In this conversation, we discuss, one, how Arthi got interested in neuroscience and the science of addiction and relapse. Super, super interesting. Number two, the impact of the 2016 presidential election as Arthi's defining moment in her decision to run. And finally, three, her climate change agenda and how she's making impact at a local level. Arthi's a candidate I would 100% vote for. So make sure if you're in New Jersey, go vote by mail on July 7th, 2020. So without further ado, Dr. Arthi Krybeck. Arthi, welcome to South Asian Stories. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we are thrilled to have you on this lovely Sunday morning. Um, everyone is in quarantine. You're running a campaign in, in quarantine. Like, I feel we're in crazy times right now. <laughs> we are. These are definitely strange and unsettling times. But I will say that... Um, we are doing the best we can, and especially from the campaign side, it's been difficult um, in some ways reaching out and, you know, not being able to do the kinds of things that we really like to do, which is knock right. on doors and have face-to-face conversations with folks. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but we've moved to the digital virtual um you know, page. And so we've been doing a lot of phone calls, a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of video calls. For sure. <laughs> um, For sure. And, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of, uh, we're doing a lot of check-in phone calls. Um, so, you know, we're out in Bergen County. Well, I live in Bergen County, uh, New Jersey. So North Jersey. Um, and the district is North Jersey. Um, and we were one of the hardest hits in New Jersey. Um, so after New York City, you know, we really bore the brunt of, of, this um the pandemic that we have so for us it was really the stay-at-home orders are real you know we're under um things are things have been pretty dire um you know the new york times just had the front page story of the hundred thousand folks that have um died from COVID 19 um and i will tell you that i know a neighbor or two or three in the community um you know, who has passed away, but also I know so many people who have been affected so many different ways. So for us, it's been, it's definitely been real. My husband works at Holy Name Hospital, mm-hmm. which um, was the worst hit um, hospital in terms of patients that were coming in. 
um, so even from early on for us, it really, you know, literally came home, right? Yeah. <laughs> when literally came home um, every day from working there and hearing the stories and, and understanding what our community has been going through has been really, has been really tough. Um, but I will also say it has been really inspiring to see how our communities come together um, and talking to people and seeing what um, what's really important um, makes me even more committed to the kinds of things that we're doing and the kinds of policies that we're fighting for. Yeah, no, that's great. And that's something that we definitely want to get into. But I want to take the timeline back, way back before yeah. um, you've, you know, you started your journey as a politician. Talk to us about your childhood. It, from your background, it sounded like you came to the U.S. at the age of 11. T- tell us what that was like for 11-year-old Arthi to come to the U.S. <laughs> you know, um, I still remember getting off the plane at JFK. I still remember um, the plane ride, you know, um, coming over with my mom and my two younger brothers who were, um, you know, I remember trying to get off the plane, um, hanging on to my you know, younger brother's hands as they were trying to run away because, you know, they're pesky younger brothers. Um, now they're older. They're still a little pesky. But <laughs> um, I still remember getting off the plane and I remember feeling so excited um, and anxious and hopeful and, you know, completely like I was in a, you know, I was going into a new world. You know, for me, I I really remember all of that, you know, you know, where your, your emotions reside sometimes when you feel it again in your stomach, it's, it's that, um, it was different. It was, it, you know, we were really excited. My parents, my dad had come here a few years before. Um, so I remember being really excited and wanting to see my dad again when we stepped off the airplane. Um, and I remember my brother, my youngest one, who was less than five at the time, I think. And he was really annoying me for some reason. And, you know, he was saying things like, oh, well, how, how am I going to recognize, you know, what what our father looks like. And I remember going, well, what do you mean? Like, you know, he's our, he's our dad, you remember, but it was hard, right. For him, especially with hindsight of, of adulthood, understanding that my dad had been gone for a number of years and my brother was really little. Um, and so for me, you know, understanding now how hard it must've been for my mom, um, to be in India by herself, um, and, you know, trying to prepare us to come here. Um, you know, I remember she took English lessons, mm-hmm. um, to, to better her English, um, so that she, you know, so that we come here and she'd be confident about, about, um, about her English, about com- being able to communicate, um, over here. So for me, I still remember what that felt like. Um, and I still remember the hope and the excitement that, you know, and the courage, courage that it took my parents, um, to be able to uproot us and, and bring us here for that promise, right? That, that promise of America that immigrants come here for, have come here for in terms of centuries. Um, and I remember, you know, we settled in Queens, um, we were lucky because Queens is and still remains one of the most diverse areas. Um, so, and that was an experience I think that was really helpful um, in retrospect to me being in, in, in a place where um, I definitely felt strange, <laughs> you know, there was definitely a culture shock, um, but, it, you know, 
but there were all different kinds of people. Um, there were all different kinds of immigrants um, there in, in, in school. And so that was, that was something that um, I'm so glad was part of my upbringing. Uh, and I'm so glad was part of, you know, my worldview when I was growing up. But yeah, we, you know, we came here, my parents didn't have a lot of money. Um, and at times they worked two jobs. Um, you know, simultaneously, I remember my mom having to work for the first time. Um, and the story is, <laughs> you know, she started working at a supermarket and she's, we're Jane, um, strictly vegetarian, you know, never eat meat or anything. And she had to figure out how to package meat for customers. And oh this God, is, you know, an experience. <laughs> yeah. And I, I still remember it was, it was like that kind of complete culture shock for her where she didn't know what to do and how, you know, how to even say that, you know, she didn't know what meat was like, it was this whole, it was just, I remember the stories. I remember how conflicted she was about the kinds of things that she had to do, how conflicted my dad was. Um, but the, the thing that, you know, was really the driving force was they wanted to make sure that we got as much of an education as we could, right? That was the big, is very familiar to most folks. Um, and that we took advantage of, you know, as many opportunities. Um, and so we were really lucky. We were so fortunate that we were able to work hard and still take advantage of those opportunities, right? So I was really lucky to be able to do that and to be able to make my dream come true, which was to be a scientist, which was really weird at the time. People were like, I don't understand. <laughs> Why do you want to be a scientist? Um, don't you want to do something more practical with your life? Um, and, you know, my brother, one of my brothers is in business on the West Coast. The other one joined um, actually the Navy. He enlisted um, out of high school. Um, and so we were all very lucky in the kinds of opportunities we were given. But, you know, I'm also really cognizant that this is not the way it works for everybody, even yeah. within our South Asian community. Yeah. You know, we have so much income inequality. We have so many. We have this like model minority myth that is out there um, that, you know, does a disservice that that to us on the whole, because I think that we don't talk a lot about people who are struggling still, um, no matter how hard they work. For sure. And like, that's one of the reasons why this podcast was something that I started because as a South Asian person, you get so much pressure to succeed in traditional, right? Like ways of uh, careers, like doctor, lawyer, engineer, scientist, whatever it is. But there's a massive amount of people who are doing stuff that are cool, that are interesting, that are worth talking to, that our community kind of just glosses over because it doesn't meet the model minority. Um, and, you know, and one of the things that I was so excited to talk to you is not only did you, you have a science degree, but you jumped into politics, which is something that is so far from what our community has come around to that it's like, people are like, wait, why are you running? Like, what, what, like, are you giving up your stable, you know, career job yeah. to do this, like <clears throat> what's going on. So that's why I think, you know, your story is so interesting is because you started out, as you said, a scientist, but you've transitioned to something that's, you know, you're passionate about, but which, which we'll get to, but let's go back to the scientists, right? So you said you've always wanted to be a scientist. Where did that I come did. from? You know, um, I have always wanted to, um, 
help people. I, even when I was younger, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something that was going to help the most amount of people when I was in India. And I think that came from the, the whole urge to sort of give back and to help people and that whole ethos, um, you know, I think came from my grandparents. Mm -hmm. I mean, my parents through my grandparents, um, my grandfather was a freedom fighter for India. We, I grew up on stories about how he fought um, to, you know, free India from colonialism, how he followed in Gandhi and Nehru and, um, you know, footsteps, how mm -hmm. he was in jail once, you know. So all of those stories are were revered. Um, and those were just part of my childhood. Um, and so I think that. I always grew up with a sense that whatever we do as individuals, we need to do to better the world. Um, you know, and my gra my maternal grandfather, um, I, I also grew up stories about how he, in his way, you know, also did the same thing where he, you know, I grew up about stories about him, you know, emigrating to, to Bombay and, you know, trying to set up a business, but always um, making sure that he helped as many people as he could. You know, if he had two cents, he would give one cent away to, you know, um, whoever asked him for help um, and how that was just the ethos um, that he had. And that those were, those were the values um, you know, that we grew up with. And so there were just so many, so many stories like that, that I think, you know, especially stories, right. They just become part of your value system and For you sure. don't even realize it. For sure. Um, and so, and to me, I, I don't think I realized it until well into adulthood that this is how, you know, how or why I was thinking about those things. So for me, that was interesting. There was a lot of pressure um, to, to be a medical doctor, uh, you know, and to be and, you know, it's so funny that you say what you said, because for me, uh, when I came, it was very traditional, very patriarchal family, right, structure. So to me, to even like branch out and to say I wanted to be a scientist was this great rebellion, mm -hmm. like this big act of rebelling against, you know, it sounds really silly, but it was, you know, I had to fight for it. I had to, um, yeah, I had to fight to go away to college and make sure that I could get, you know, as many scholarships I could so that that was something that was feasible for me to do. Um, I had to fight to you know, to forge my own way and say, you know, here's, I really want to do research. This is how I think I'm going to bring value and, um, and, you know, fight to be away from sort of the traditional norms of you get married at a young age, um, you know, preferably to somebody Indian, mm -hmm. um, you know, that my parents have chosen for me, you know, all of that, like we talk about it now in 2020, as if it's far away. And I know that people still think that, but I will say that this is, this was a reality um, for me. This, these, those were the expectations um, that that my folks had for me. That you know, just people in general had um, for me as we were weaving through it. Um, and it was it was not always easy um, to forge that path, right? To say like, this is what I wanted to do. Um, but I think that I've always also been stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I probably get that from my parents and grandparents as well. Um, and so it was just, you know, it was just something in me that said, this is just important. It's important that I do this this way, even if I fail. Um, so that was, you know, I mean, to be fair, I, when I was 10, I also thought I was going to win the Nobel prize and that hasn't happened. <laughs> so there is that, <laughs> you know, um, uh, but 
yeah, that that's it was just an it was me trying to figure out how I could help the most amount of people. And when mm-hmm. I looked around, especially in India growing up, you know, I was there until I was 11. Um, there were so many people who were hurting. There were so many people who were sick. You know, I saw that. Right. Um, and so for me, that felt like the right move is to try and see how we could help the most amount of people by by furthering science. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. so one of the things I thought was super interesting was you got your PhD at UPenn. You, your research focused on opioid addiction. Like that is fascinating to me just because of how destructive it can be to a huge amount of people like fentanyl. I have read a few articles about it and it's just like, you know, the ability of that drug to really change people's lives. And I want to hear your perspective on why you decided to research that and, and, you know, what your experience is and what you could tell us. Yeah. So, you know, so I got interested in neuroscience because, um, when I was in college, there was no neuroscience major. That's how old I am. Um, and um, I really wanted to understand why people behave the way they do um, or why we all behave the way we do. And then I was really fascinated by this idea that um, there were, you know, parts in our, in our brain, proteins, uh, you know, that might actually contribute to this. And I just it was just to me, you know, amazing right amazing that you have chemicals in your brain that might be changing the kinds of ways that you're thinking about things and this was before we you know really understood the biological basis of um disease um and especially mental illness or you know addiction any of that so to me that was really fascinating um and so when i went to um grad school and i was looking at the kinds of things i could be thinking about you know one of the most compelling um, things that I saw was addiction, um, was the fact that it was a compulsion. Um, even when somebody wanted or wants to quit, it is really, really difficult to do so. Um, and the idea that, you know, and people for a long time, even when I was first starting research, thought it was just somebody being weak. I know people still think that, Mm -hmm. um, some of them, um, and that it was somebody who, you know, just didn't have that will, right, to to overcome. And it's complete fallacy. Right? We know that that's not the truth. Um, we know that it's because fundamentally there are changes that are occurring in your brain. Fundamentally, there are proteins that are being changed. And, and part of that was really my research where I just really wanted to understand, you know, what it was that was happening. So I looked at, of course, mouse models um, at the time because those were easier um to access um and for me sorry what are really mouth imp- models oh mouse mouse oh mouse sorry. mouse like, okay got yeah. it um <clears throat> so because you know to me that was just a little bit easier to model um than than people but for me what was interesting was to also understand not just how folks got addicted um but really try and understand um, relapse because one of the things that happens, right, um, is that every somebody who's addicted, it is really difficult, um, even when you are sober, um, even when you try, and um, even when you've sort of gone through detox, gone through everything that you possibly can, it is much easier to relapse because your brain has been permanently changed, um, and things like stress um, can actually um, stressors that you have. 
particularly in a pandemic crisis, for example, right, um, can actually um, lead you to be more vulnerable um, to relapse. And so one of the things that I um, that my PhD thesis um, looked at was, you know, what brain proteins um, are actually involved in that. And I was one of the first ones to really start looking at relapse, you know, in the in the brain and to try and figure out, you know, um, what happens in the brain um, and why why it's more vulnerable with the idea of trying to make it more resilient. So this idea of trying to make sure that uh, or trying to figure out how we can be more resilient in the future has been a theme um, that I've had, you know, I think my entire life in some ways. Um, and I will say, Particularly, so when I was doing research, you know, opiate addiction was still there, but it wasn't quite um, as much. Um, it was waning, um, you know, in society. And now there's been a resurgence, and it's, there's been a resurgence primarily because of opioid painkillers that made a resurgence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because people have, and and I will say, frankly, pharmaceutical companies um, have unfortunately um, brought that back by you know, undermining the kinds of things that opioids actually do, um, which is to make sure, which are just one of the most addictive substances. Um, And I will say that um, that was eye-opening to see quite, you know, coming back out of that kind of research and looking in the world and understanding quite how much it has ravaged entire generations. Um, You know, we were, so in, um, Sussex and Warren counties in New Jersey, parts of it are in my district. Um, they had, you know, we, we talk about overdoses um, frequently. Um, it has ravaged a generation there um, that has been lost to addiction to the point where, you know, one of the high school proms or graduations last year had a number of ODs. Um, and it was really, it has been just heartbreaking heartbreaking to see um and to try and figure out what you can do um to help you know as a community and it's it's completely unfair that we are thinking more about it now um that it's actually affecting more communities that are white um than they were before but now it's everywhere um and it's everywhere in suburbia it's everywhere in you know in in our cities um and in our rural communities um and what we need is education and compassion and understanding that this is something where fundamentally our brains are changing um and that what we need um, is actual help and not just tossing folks away and saying that you know they're not worth anything. And I will say that I'm seeing that shift. Um, and that, that is what promotes resilience, right? So if in, as part of a community, we start talking about what that recovery process looks like, and we start talking about how we help, um, each other, um, and how we help the person who's affected and the family that's affected, uh, really by talking about it openly, right? Mm -hmm. So that there's no shame, there's no stigma, attached to it. Um, you know, and that's something that I've been trying to do as a council member when part of this committee called stigma free. And we had last year a panel, um, and it was a really powerful panel. It was from an organization called alumni recovery. And this young person came up and he talked about, um, recovery and the shocking thing, right. Um, for those of us in the audience who were listening was that he started telling us 
intersections were five, six, seven years ago, um, intersections, intersections in my town um, where he had gotten high um, or where he had, you know, gotten um, access to um, access to heroin um, or access to pills. Um, And so, you know, we all realize that it's in our communities, that it's Mm -hmm. our neighbors um, and that it's our job to start talking about it um, in a real way um, and to start talking about it like the public health crisis that it is and to really have a lot more compassion um, for folks who are going through it at the end of the day. Wow. So it's almost like you came full circle of like so much of your life was dedicated to the research of it. And then when you got out of it, you know, massive accomplishment to get your PhD, you're like, wow, the real world is dealing with the the consequences of some parts of my research. And you almost had like an inside track to what's actually happening to, um, you know, what people were going through. Did that empathy of what, knowing what the the, you know, physiologically happening to the, to the body in terms of you know, addiction and, you know, resilience and coming back did that affect your views on what was going on in, in your County and in the real world? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for me, it's always, I've had this over the last, I would say five or six years, um, maybe even longer. It's been sort of a slow awakening to, the fact that we do all this research as scientists and we have all of these insights into what's happening biologically, perhaps, or even epidemiologically or public health, right? Um, but then it doesn't necessarily get translated well enough um, into policy and doesn't get translated well enough into our community, right? And I've, I've been, in, you know, even as um, a researcher and I, you know, I did postdoctoral research for a while and then I was um, actually working for um, pharmaceutical companies to be a clinical educator because I wanted to apply, um, you know, some of the research out and make sure that folks understood and knew about it. Um, and I left pharma because, um, frankly, I thought that the model, and I still do, um, the model is not what we need. It's not a sustainable model. I don't believe in, in the way that drugs are developed. I don't believe um, in pharma. I don't believe in the pricing model, all of that, So, which is why I left it after three years. But um, And I worked for a nonprofit. But all of it through through it all my journey has been you know taking that research taking this like life-saving insights that we have right um and trying to make sure that we can apply them so that we can help the most amount of people because the research doesn't help anybody if we're living in silos if we're not able to communicate right the kinds of things that we're talking about and that to me had always been the frustrating part um so i tried to do that in multiple different ways. And now I'm trying to do that with policy because it's exactly what you're talking about, right? So me understanding as a scientist that we need to have compassion because we have, you know, brain structures that are fundamentally changed, fundamentally changed that it is really, really difficult to change them back. And this is why, you know, addiction is not just, you know, somebody willing or not willing to do something, um, right? Does nobody any good? if we're not going out there in the community and actually helping people that way and actually putting in, you know, programs and policies that talk about it in those ways. Um, similar, you know, so we can talk about the pandemic that we're in right now. Does nobody any good if we have scientists, like we know, um, had scientists and, and who understood what the extent of this crisis could be, who understood quite how much we were going to be in terms of rates of infection, in terms of the kinds of people who are, I mean, I, 
knew that, right? We we saw some of that thing, saw some of it. We had plenty of warning. We saw other countries in the entire world going through this, right? And we saw the consequences when we weren't doing the kinds of things we needed to do, like social distancing, like masks. Like we saw the consequences in Iran, which had a spike of almost 20% of fatality, you know, months before they came here. Does nobody any good if we're muzzling scientists, right? If we're not listening to them, if we're not actually translating that to policy um, fast enough. I mean, this is a very uh, crucial, unfortunately shocking and acute way of looking at this. But you can look at, you can look at a lot of things and, you know, the public health sphere and actually just our social policy sphere in general. Um, if we don't bring all that research together, if we don't bring the data and the facts together and don't have our elected leaders who are willing to do that, right, who are willing to say, let's talk to the experts and understand that and bring it in um, with the idea that we're trying to help the most amount of people um because that's what government should be doing at the end of the day and honestly um, and it comes from been, the top right like if the yeah. leader that we have who is running the country does not believe wholeheartedly into science it's a trickle-down effect where the leaders yeah. follow the or the other leaders who are part of you know making important decisions if the, if the top leader doesn't do that it's like we our hands are tied and especially with a crisis like this where it's so science driven the facts are the facts you cannot dispute them like it's the worst type of leadership when you cannot believe in the people who are trying to help which are the scientists and it's you know to me it's you know, this has been happening for a while, right? This this erosion of, you know, trust or faith in science, which is crazy to me because science is truth. Like this is, these are the facts. This is what we have. It's been happening for a while. And for me, watching it as a scientist has been really disturbing because I will tell you, I thought the hardest part about being a scientist was going to be doing the experiments, right? Um, you know, trying to find the, trying to, um, answer a research question. I didn't think the hardest part was going to be going out and trying to convince somebody that science is real. And I think it's mind boggling to yeah. me that we're at that point yeah. in our country. Um, and this is why I think, we need, yeah, I mean, it's crazy, right? Like, this is not where we should be. This yeah. is not who we are as a society. And that's why we need more people to step up and say no and to to actually be vocal, right? Yes. And to actually say, no, this is what science is. Like, I know I, I want to go back to work too, like outside the house too. I want my kids to go to school as well. But listen, you know, this is the reality. We need a whole lot more testing. We need a whole lot more information and data before we can do that. We can't just willy-nilly just say, it's okay. Let's just sacrifice, you know, people in our society to do it. Yeah. No, that is that is exactly right. And bringing science and politics, like that is something that you uniquely provide um, that a lot of people don't have. So I want to talk touch on... What was that spark for you, Arthi, that really made you say, I want to make, be that person that makes the difference? You know, people talk a lot, and especially in our community, people are like, yeah, we should change this and that, but they don't have skin in the game, right? They don't jump into the arena and like, if I want change, I've got to be the one that does it. Like, what was that spark for you? And I know like your first borough council run in 2017 was your taste of that. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so... <laughs> So for me, it was it was definitely the 2016 election, right? So, <laughs> <For sure. laughs> 
Uh, I mean, it was, you know, before the pandemic, I actually said that that was, you know, the defining moment um, in my life. There was a distinct before and after. And, and there really has been. Right. So. So the day of the 20s, I, I was one of the ones who was completely shocked by the election results um, the day of completely. Um, I, you know, my sons were eight and 11 at the time. The day of the election, the three of us went and voted in the morning, vote wore matching pantsuits, right? Um, maybe blue pantsuits, all three of us. Um, this was when my kids allowed me to dictate how they were dressed. Yeah. Um, then we went um, to get out the vote, to knock on doors, to get out the vote in Pennsylvania for Hillary. Okay. So we went, we were all excited. Uh, we came back, you know, after spending hours out there, we came back expecting to have a party in our house. Um, and my boys, uh, we were so proud of having knocked on doors, having canvassed, having, you know, had a taste of what we need to do, you know, having had a hand um, in electing somebody we believed in our first woman president is what we thought clearly that's not what happened um and it was devastating it was devastating for my kids it was devastating for me as a parent to try and explain what happened i still can't quite explain what happened right and as a parent um as somebody who had you know put our whole family or you know our whole heart and into this and completely being blindsided by this was just, you know, I didn't know what to do with that. Right. My kid, and I didn't know how to parent my kids effectively through that. We were, you know, we, we sort of just tried to muddle through. So that was bad enough. Um, and I thought, how could I have completely misread, you know, America? <laughs> um, and so I started thinking about that a lot. And then in the days and weeks that followed, we had sp spikes in hate crimes, right? Um, and, you know, to me, it actually felt even worse than it was after 9-11. I remember the the spikes in bias incidences after 9-11, particularly for the South Asian communities. Um, and it really just felt like it was worse. It just people were emboldened to do things against multiple groups that they hadn't been emboldened to do before, Um you know, and it was it was awful. Um, the atmosphere was awful. And I didn't realize how much it was affecting my kids. Um, and until my eight year old. One day at that time, and this still gets to me, um, he he came up and he was he was upset and he said, um, I'm really worried. I'm really worried with this president that you're going to be deported. And I'm really worried that um, you're not going to be able to meet my mom anymore in America. And that to me was um, just this visceral, yeah. you know, wrenching feeling, right? As as a as an immigrant who who's come here, who's made her home here, um, you know, who's done all she could to be part of a very proud citizen, right, of America. And who has done all that she could to be part of society. Um, and, you know, we're very proud, right? So my, my kids have know this, know how, how much pride we take, how much pride I took of making sure, I, you know, I became a citizen after I was 18 because I wanted it to be my choice and, you know, all of that. So so for me, that was a really wrenching um 
moment. Oh, yeah. He was also worried about my parents. Um, he was worried that my parents, you know, were going to be targeted because, you know, they sound a little bit more Indian than I do. Um, and, you know, that was that was really tough. It still is um, for me to think about. But it wasn't just it wasn't just that. Right. So I also was very cognizant that I could give him a hug and, you know, and tell him it was going to be okay. And here's why, um, you know, I wasn't going to be deported. And here's why that I was going to be safe. And I could tell him all of that. But I knew that there were so many other parents who really couldn't honestly tell their kids that, right? I knew that there were so many other people in our community who just rightfully felt so much more vulnerable and so much more insecure than they ever had. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, it was that it was just, I felt like, you know, given, given the kinds of things that were happening, I just, I couldn't, I needed to do a lot more. I needed to step up. And so it wasn't a straight line from like, you know, thinking that I needed to do more to, you know, running for office. That's, it's not quite how that happened. But, you know, for me, it was, um, you know, I started speaking out more. Um, I started talking to folks in my community a lot more. I marched in the Women's March. Um, I organized um, with three other women. We we formed a grassroots group, um, you know, uh, again, after the march. Um, and then I really started you know, thinking a lot more about the kinds of change that we needed to make. Um, you know, I was already really disturbed by the lack of um, science, by by the fact that, you know, there was such an attack on science, that there was such an attack on what really people should agree is truth. Um, and so that was part of, you know, that was part of the journey for me. And I realized that I was going to, if I was going to make a change, I needed to then put my whole self in. And I said, and I really bought into the whole idea that change begins at the local level. And I cared a lot about making sure that we had that. Um, and so I ran for council of my local town. Never thought I was going to do that. <laughs> Never as a child would have, you know, would have imagined that this is where I was going to go. Um, but it was really important for me to bring, you know, my values to the table, our values to the table. Yeah. Um, and incredibly, not having had, you know, political experience, but figuring out as we went, um, getting together, um, you know, a volunteer army um, who believed in our values and who believed in the kind of representation I was talking about, um, I was able to win. Um, awesome. And, you know, it was, yeah, I have to say, I I will say that in the last three years that I've been on council, I've been challenged. Um, I'm surprised at how much I like it. Um, but I've also been so grateful for the kind of support. Um, one of the one of the most one of my proudest kind of feelings is when um, I've had girls, especially South Asian girls, come up to me and say, you know, I never thought that. I could be both a, you know, lawyer, engineer, whatever, and be in politics. Like I never thought Indian women really could be in politics. I yeah. never saw that. Yeah. 
Um, And so being able to show, especially girls, um, that it was possible, um, you know, means a lot to me. That's massive. And I I can't underscore that enough, Arthi, of how important that is. If not saying, hey, you have to be one or the other, right? Right. You don't have to trade off between your vocation and a career in politics. And showing the next generation that this is a viable option for you. You can do this. You can be the change um, you, you know, you want to see in the world. That is incredible. I'm so glad you got that response because how important that is to our community, our, especially our South Asian community, to have models like you is just amazing. Um, tell us about some of the highlights and some of the, on the other end, the lowlights of being a council member of things that you didn't expect that just, you know, you can, you can share with us now. So I'll tell you a silly thing I didn't expect, um, which is that, um, that people would recognize me when I'm on the, uh, on the street. So now, um, it is, um, it is really difficult to come out in my pajamas to walk my dog. Um, so that, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. I still do it, but <laughs> I'm a little bit more cognizant of having to say hi, you know, that, uh, um, saying hello to people and stuff. And I, it's great though. I have to say it is, it is really great to go around and, you know, knowing folks in my community and knowing people who are out there, yeah. um, which is great. Um, so that part is, you know, that was a, that was a silly thing that I didn't think, um, you know, that I definitely wasn't prepared for. Um, some of the highlights, um, I, you know, climate change and climate crisis is something that is really important to me. That's been central to how I live my life actually for, um, for, for a long time now. Um, it's been a central issue that I brought to council and I was one of the, um, yeah, I've been one of the champions, right. Of making sure that we are doing everything we can, even on the local level to mitigate the climate crisis because it's here. It's an existential crisis. We cannot put our heads in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist um, because it does. um, And it's causing problems um, and it's going to be even worse. Right. So I really believe that we need to do everything we can at all different levels of government, all, all different levels of community. So um, I've been really proud at the initiatives that, you know, that I've taken, that we've taken as a community um, from, you know, having electric vehicle charging stations. um, And I, you know, did the initiative for plastic bag ban um, in our town. Um, And one of the proudest things um, that we were able to do as a community was now every single resident in Glen Rock um, in our town has at default 100% clean renewable energy. So you can switch from it if you like. Um, but because of the initiatives that we've done at the council that I championed in terms of um, an er- energy aggregate program, um, everybody, all the residents, 100% clean renewable ener- energy is, is what they have. Uh, and that's the scale of thinking that we need, right? That's the scale of thinking that we need where we can make that difference. If you're able to make that difference on the local level, we should be doing that. Um, and when we do that, so imagine we're one small town. Right. So imagine if we could do this at a county basis or a state basis or a congressional district basis. You're already making a huge difference um, in the kinds of things that we need to do um, to be more sustainable, to be more resilient in the future, because this is it. You know, we need to. And I will say that, you know, one of the things I didn't anticipate, climate change means potholes. Right. So. (laughs) 
And this is true. I say that I'm like, you know, it affects everyday lives. Like as a local elected official, um, I know that um, potholes are huge, are, are and a daily nuisance that, you know, actually affect our daily um, everyday life. Um, it is really important to make sure that we have that we fix our roads, that we have good infrastructure. Really hard to do that when we have rainier springs um, that make it difficult to fill the potholes that, that, you know, that you end up having more potholes in the first place that make it difficult to fill the potholes um, that make it difficult to and to allocate resources to make sure that we have enough money in the budget for that. So even like very simple, small things that you think should be really easy um, are affected by these massive global um, issues that we're dealing with. And I think that we need elected leaders who understand that, right? Who understand that it, that something like this is underpinning absolutely everything, um, that we're dealing with Mm -hmm. on a daily basis, as well as on a a larger time scale and a larger, um, scale of effect. Um, and what we need are people who understand that are going to be far thinking enough about it and are going to start to implement policies to make us more resilient against that. And we need that at all different levels of government. Um, And we need just everyday people um, to be talking more about it and demanding more out of our representatives. I mean, that's, you know, we have public meetings at the council that are televised. Um, And so there at at public meetings, we invite whoever it is there to come and talk about what it is. And potholes definitely get talked about, but so do big issues, right? People demand better of elected officials, local elected officials. They should. They should take me to task if they think I'm doing a bad job or if I'm not actually responding to something that they do. And we need more of that entitlement, right? We need more of that empowerment for all of us so that when we don't agree with something, Elected leaders are there because we elect them. They need to listen to us. Yeah. And we need to do a part by telling them what we want. Yeah. Especially and, our community. <laughs> and that civic engagement is something that I ha- have opened my eyes to. I talked to another um, girl who is part of a, you know, a congressional fellow. And she was telling to me, she's like, Samir, people in our, especially in our South Asian community, you know, do contribute to campaigns, you know, they do campaign for what they believe in. But once the elected leader on the local state congressional district is uh, elected, they don't ask for anything, right? Like, mm-hmm. you need to talk to your leaders who are there, as you said, representing you to be there for your best interests. You need to ask for what you're looking for. And sometimes our community, because of our history of not rattling the cage of like, we're just going to do our thing in our own little zone and not bother anyone, you know, nothing gets done that's reflecting of our interests. And you know, and the first step is to ask for it. So I love that you brought that thing up because that's a recurring theme that I've seen is making sure your elected officials work for you, especially your community. Yeah. And I think, you know, so it's actually really interesting because I actually also find as somebody who's running for Congress, um, as somebody who's, you know, who, who's yeah. campaigning right now. Yeah that our community also finds it difficult to um, to come out for necessarily progressive South Asians, right? I think that um, sometimes it's really difficult um, for them in general because we've been taught to keep our head down, exactly. right? And do, yeah, like, and do, like, stay in our lanes. Yes. This is our lane. Like, yes. you know, why are you doing this? Like, I've, I've been asked this so many times, like, yeah. with, you know, uncles and aunties, like, 
Peter, but you know, you should just do what you were doing before. That's the noble thing, exactly. you know. And it's this very, and I understand, right? I mean, I was I was told that for a long time until I was compelled to do more. Right. And I think that we really need to own our power as South Asians. And we really are doing a disservice to our young people by not by not promoting that more, right? Because this is where our power as a community lies. Um, and I will say that I have high hopes uh, of, of our young people because they need to be engaged. And I, I, you know, I see a lot more of them. You know, I'm really proud at the number of South Asian uh, young folks that are involved in my campaign. Um, and I'm really proud of, you know, making sure that I try and, and um, have as many as possible and that I try and make sure that when I'm out there, I will talk about what it means to be, uh, what it means to me to be South Asian um, and doing this um, and a woman and doing this, you know. I think that's really important, but we do, we need to understand that politics um, are not dirty. <laughs> politics mm -hmm. is not necessarily corrupt. Uh, and if you think it is, you can do something about it, yep. right? That you can be empowered um, to go out there and say, no, this is not okay. This is not the way it should be. And then I'm going to do my best to make sure that we have as many um, as many folks with integrity, as many folks who are representative of the values that we want to bring to, you know, bring to office, as many folks who are going to actually represent the people um, out there, you know, no matter who you are, but especially for the South Asian community. I think that's so important. Yes, you hit the nail on the head where um, that dichotomy between what our parents' generation had to go through to get to here and us being yeah. Americans as much as we are Indians or Pakistanis or whatever it is, you know, that American in, in, like individuality, like you can do this, you can change, you can stand up for what you need to and not, you know, feel uh, shameful or feel any sort of like, um, you know, reservation of, of, of sharing what you want. Like that is key. And I agree with you. Like, um, my generation and the generation behind me is just, I feel this groundswell coming where, um, you know, yeah. what you said about the 2016 election, um, that was a turning point for me too, where it's just like, we cannot let this happen again if this is something that you don't believe in. Like, you cannot stand on the sidelines and expect a yeah. different result. Um, yeah. Arthi, tell us about your current campaign running for your congressional district. I know um, it, you're against a, a primary challenge or a challenger who's been there for a while, um, who's on your website says a fundraise human fundraising machine. Tell, tell us what that's like to go up against someone like that and, and what you're doing about it. Yeah. So um, I am, I'm, I am challenging an incumbent um, who I actually supported in 2016, reluctantly supported in 2018. Right. So we have, um, I'm running for Congress in New Jersey's fifth district. It's in North Jersey. And so we had actually a very um, Tea Party conservative Congress member for many years um, before our current Congress member. And so when he won in 2016, right, that election that was so devastating, he was sort of that glimmer of hope for us, for me. Um, I thought he was going to go to Washington. He was going to fight for us. Right. I thought, well, at least we have a Congress member who's on our side. And unfortunately, even from his very first vote where he um, voted to roll back Obama era regulations on the environment and health, um, 
he has not only been disappointing, um, that was just a puzzling vote. Like, I couldn't understand why he did that. Um, and But that has been indicative of the kinds of politics he's played, which is undermining the kinds of policies that I think that we need in Congress. And those policies are the ones based on science and data and helping the most amount of people um, yep. possible. Yep. So, you know, he has voted for uh, things like border wall funding, which I'm completely against. Um, he's voted for to deregulate Dodd-Frank um, regulations, the banking regulations that are there to keep us more resilient in the future. Um, he voted um, against the Iran war powers resolution. So he sided with Trump. He's in 2018. I think he voted in the calendar year 2018. He voted almost 77% of the time with Trump. Um, and this is a Democratic um, Congress member. He does not represent the people. He does not represent most of the people in my district. Um, and I think uh, a lot of his votes are tied to funding um, and, you know, tied to funding that he's getting from Wall Street and corporate PACs. Um, to me, the fact, the influence of corporate PAC money in government has been one of the most disturbing influences that we've had um, in our in our system. It's actually why policies that are common sense policies that should go forward have been stymied for so long. Um, I, you know, even with climate change in the 80s, for example, we had um, we had a way of moving forward um, until the fossil fuel companies came in and until they essentially regress the kinds of policies that were going to go forward at that time. Um, and I, you know, I see that happening every day and an everyday basis. I mean, my Congress member right now um, is the one who wrote an op-ed um, several months ago or several weeks ago when the crisis um, had just started, uh, the pandemic crisis had just started, um, where he said this was a curveball that Mother Nature had um, thrown to us, um, but that he could not blame, you know, any single American for what was happening. I completely disagree with that. There is one particular person in power that I absolutely blame um, for the unnecessary lives that we're losing um, every day. And I think that we need people in Congress who are actually going to stand up against this, right? Who are going to stand up to Trump, who are going to hold him accountable, who are going to stand up to people who are not using science, who are not using data um, for the policies. And I absolutely believe Right. Which is actually why I'm not taking corporate PAC money or fossil fuel money, because I absolutely believe that we need elected leaders who are going to represent people. And you can't do that if you are taking donations from corporate PACs or fossil fuel companies. You just can't. I mean, it's just a proven fact. Right. Um, and we need people who are elected leaders, especially now, as we're trying to get through this and out of this pandemic crisis. We need folks who are going to be making policies based on data and science and who are going to make sure that we advocate for policies and implement them that make us more sustainable and more resilient in the future. And that to me means a stronger social safety net, yeah. you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. And this is an opportunity for us to be able to do that. Um, so that's why I'm running for Congress. Um, our primary is July 7th. It's going to be a mostly vote by mail primary, which means the ballots are going to drop in a couple of weeks. Um, and then, you know, we're we're pushing to get 
folks to send in the ballots by mail instead of coming out to vote. Um, there will be a few polling stations that are open, but, um, you know, we're trying to make sure that people are as, as safe as possible. Um, and so the, you know, it needs to be postmarked by July 7th. So I'm really optimistic. Um, we have an excellent chance at winning. So, and I'm That's really great. proud of my campaign. Yeah. And, you know, bringing it back to what we talked about at the beginning, how has this pandemic changed the way you've gone to the community and asked for, you know, their support. Like, I know you're saying you're being on a lot of Zoom calls and now it's going to be a most likely a mail-in vote. Does that help? Does that hurt you? Like, where do you feel on that? <laughs> yeah, you know, we we are, I will say one thing that we've done really well as a campaign is change with the times, right? And and adapt as, as much as possible. So one of the first things we did, I told you that we were, you know, really hard hit. Um, and thankfully, we seem to be past the, the peak curve, although there are still folks who are being tested who are getting sick every day. Um, that in the beginning, when we did, I canceled all of our in-person events, I think a week or so before we actually had the stay-at-home orders that came down and they came down in March for us, early March. Um, and, um, you know, we shifted to all digital, um, you know, and all virtual kind of all, all the efforts in terms of voter uh, voter reach out. So to date, we've made more than 70,000 phone calls. Most wow. of them have to check in. Yeah, most of them have been to check in um, to see how folks are doing, um, you know, to connect them with resources if they need it. Um, you know, we have mutual aid um, page on our campaign website um, that we make sure that we're connecting folks to the kinds of resources they need. Um, and we did, you know, one of the first things I did was to fundraise for uh, food pantry for Center for Food Action. Um, and unfortunately, we're seeing even more need now um, than we had. We've raised, you know, that almost $3,000 um, for the food pantry, even as we were, you know, fundraising in general. Um, did a PPE collection, having you know, a husband who's a frontline healthcare worker, having so many friends and family who are frontline healthcare workers, one of the most infuriating part of this early on um, has definitely been the lack of protection, right? Um, it's there. I mean, I can't begin to tell you how wrong that is, uh, how wrong that continues to be for essential workers now who are working in supermarkets or long-term healthcare facilities who still don't have adequate PPE, right? Yep. So we did... Um, collection from the beginning. Um, we've done food pantry collections. We've done, you know, everything that we could um, to, you know, give out, you know, even just coming out and giving out hot meals to seniors who are homebound and things along those lines. So I'm really proud of um, our campaign because, you know, that really shows you the ethos that we have, which is connecting with the community, trying to help, uh, even as we're running the campaign. And then on the other side of, you know, trying for our folks to get to know us um, and to understand the kinds of things that we're doing, I've been doing town halls on a weekly basis. Cool. Um, and there are Zoom calls that kind of go out. Uh, they're, uh, you know, Facebook Live, Twitter Live Stream, YouTube. They're, you know, they're recorded so people can come back and, you know, on there. And then we've talked about issues that are not necessarily always talked about. Um, we've talked about issues with experts um, in the field, and I'm really obviously passionate about that. So our very first one was medical. So we had an ENT doc, um, a neurologist, an epidemiologist on to talk about COVID-19, to talk about what it means to flatten the curve, um, to talk about vaccines and treatments and, you know, the scientific basis of that. Um, we've had COVID-19 town halls on um, that and the intersection with the climate crisis. 
um, as well as um, education. Um, a lot of us are doing distance learning now with our kids um, and really talking about how the pandemic is affecting the education system, the inequities um, that are also there. Um, mental health, um, obviously, we're all dealing with a lot of things. We talked Close about addiction. for you, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, we talked about addiction. We talked about grief. We talk about how we deal with anxiety and all things that we're doing. Um, We've also had a town hall on racial justice. um, And, you know, really the fact that black and brown communities have been um, hit the worst um, with this crisis and why it's going to continue to be unless we do something about it. Um, we just had one on the relief that working families need. And we talked a lot about, um, you know, rent and mortgage and predatory lending and, you know, the fact that it's on the upswing now um, with the crisis. So we continue to do that um, because I want to make sure that we are having these conversations that are really important um, to our community and that we are really talking about the kinds of things, you know, not just bring awareness, which is absolutely important, but we're also talking about the kinds of things that folks can do um, and the kinds of resources they have. Um, to help with that. So, um, you know, and while this has been going on, we've been getting endorsements from a number of um, number of organizations I'm really proud of. So we have, you know, put together this great coalition with progressive and suburban voters. So, um, you know, I'm really so we were talking about youth and, you know, engagement. Um, You know, I'm one of the only I think only campaigns that has had um, endorsements from four different Sunrise Hubs um, with climate justice. And that's great because we have, you know, a lot of folks who are young and, um, you know, who believe in the campaign that are on board. So, that's so we've awesome. been busy. <laughs> that's awesome. And I just feel, you know, the sense of excitement and empowerment and um, optimism from you, which is amazing, right? And I can say from my end of one, my personal experience, like I don't get that too often when I think about our elected leaders. It's more like, oh God, like when is this going to, when it, when this too shall pass, as my mom always says. But, um, yeah. you know, this is the kind of people and you are the kind of person I'm excited about and to, to have you, you know, represent our community so well and, you know, the things you stand for, which, I think are incredible is so cool. And, uh, you know, I, I wish you all the best w- with that. So um, in our last part of our interview, I want to go to some of our rapid fire questions. So our listeners can okay. hear a little bit more about what you like and, and you know, outside of, uh, you know, your, 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 the politics and all outside of what you do. Um, so first question for you, Arthi is, is there an item that you have bought recently that has dramatically improved your life? It can be an item or service, small or big. Okay. Um, so on the silly sides of things, we actually ended up getting one of those stands to hold your phone so that I can do like videos and, and, you know, like little videos and things without having to hold it myself or having one of my children. (laughs) So that has dramatically improved my life. So I don't have to yell at my 12 year old to come and hold the phone. Right. You're (laughs) self-sufficient. Yes. And this has dramatically improved his life as well. So Good. 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 Have have your kids got you on the TikTok trend? So they love TikTok. We love TikTok. Um, I am still working on them uh, to let me do a TikTok video. So we 
<laughs> they're they they are a little embarrassed by their mother wanting to do something on TikTok. So so we're still working on that. But it's great as a parent to threaten your kids with that. By That's the way, right. just, just use it as a just, stick, right? <laughs> yes, just sound parental advice here. <laughs> threaten your kids that you're going to be on TikTok <laughs> as a 45 year old. Trust me, they will clean their rooms. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> Okay, second question for you. When you think of a South Asian person you look up to, either in your field or outside your field, in politics, outside politics, who would you say comes to mind and why? Oh, gosh, there are so many people, right? So, I mean, I run the gamut of my mom that I look up to for her courage and her incredible courage, like every day, really, um, for the kinds of things she does to, um, you know, to to Pramila Jaipal, um, you know, as a South Asian congresswoman, congress member, um, and the kinds of things that she advocates and, you know, how brave and um, courageous she is and, and uh, you know, how, how well she advocates for her district. So, yeah, there, there, there are a number of them, and they tend to be mostly women. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And the, the thing is, um, I, you know, we've got, I've asked this question a number of times, and the amount of times people have said their parents is really heartwarming because even for me is you get so much of your values and your grit and the ability to think on your feet and and just compassion from your parents is because they're your original role models which you see translated to other people in your community whether in your field or outside your field so i think that's that's great that you have you know, uh, the vision of where your mom came from and how that's transitioned to Pramila and, and what she stands for. That I think that's outstanding. Okay. Um, okay. Next question is, what is a movie or book that has had the most impact on you? A movie or a book that has had the most impact? Um, I would say in terms of, so I'm a bookworm, so I will say probably <laughs> books come more easily to mind. Um, there are a number of them. So I love poetry. So Maya Angelou's collected poems has been, you know, one of the things that I actually keep coming back to. Yeah. Um, you know, so to me, that's, uh, that's something that's given me strength. Um, and really just, optimism as well um michelle obama's book becoming recently having read that um has been amazing outstanding and i just saw the netflix documentary on it which was also amazing (laughs) just to like relive that feeling it's amazing oh that's great that's great so we actually i ended up um you know she was doing uh one of her tours um you know post the book and so we i went to see it with a friend of mine and it was also great um to see so to me that's you know that's been inspiring and that helps um especially when you're in the middle of campaigning especially when you're you know there are days where you just feel like gosh you know can i do this right um and they're few and far between but but they exist and so having things like poetry, having things like inspiring, um, you know, books like that has been helpful. Um, and then, you know, for me, when I was in high school, I read uh, Rachel Carson's The Silent Spring um, for the Environment. And I don't know if you've read that. It's just an incredible, uh, incredible book. Um, it really, you know, influenced me, actually, I think, my entire life since then in ways that I didn't even begin to process, um, you know, until I was an adult. Um, and you know, that's been underlying the kinds of ways I think about things. So I think those would be the three that come to mind. (laughs) Great. Great. Okay. This is a big one. And I'm, I'm very curious to know your, your thoughts behind this. Um, 
if you had to give an up-and-coming South Asian person who's interested in making a difference in politics um, or, you know, civic engagement or civic duty, what advice would you give them and why? Oh, first of all, I'd be so excited. <laughs> I would say, yes, please. This is amazing that you're even thinking about this. This is fantastic. Yeah. Um, so first of all, yes, you know, baseline, complete excitement. What advice I would give them? Um, I think it's very similar to the advice um, I used to give my students, uh, you know, it, when I was teaching, when I was, uh, when I was a scientist doing research, which is um, don't be afraid of failing. Just don't be afraid of failing. It's just, you know, just ask, um, be curious, ask a lot of questions um, and and just take a step, any step. You know, it doesn't have to be huge. You can take a baby step. You know, you can you, you can do one small thing. So if you want to be more civically engaged, baby step is just even looking up who your, you know, who your local elected leaders are, who, you know, who represents you in Congress, even your congressional district, because they're so gerrymandered, it's hard to understand, right? Even looking that up is one baby step that you can do, right? Um, if you want to go a little bit further and just emailing somebody and asking them their thoughts about whatever, you know, that's, that's one more thing that you can do. Um, you, you know, anything that you can to sort of build up that muscle, um, you know, is going to be useful. Um, and, and I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be a congressional candidate if I didn't put this out there. If you want to volunteer, um, my campaign is looking for volunteers, um, virtually, um, you know, we are taking, we have, um, we have so many volunteers, especially young people. We have a fellows program. So if you want to volunteer, please come to my website. Um, there's volunteer tab on there. It's our, you know, Arthi for Congress. Um, I would love to have you. This is something that I passionately believe in, um, in terms of engagement. So I'd love to have you, but if, you know, if you're, if you're not ready to take that step yet, um, by the way, it's super easy. We have a great community, so you would be welcome. If you're not ready to do that. And if you just are thinking about it, um, really just be curious, ask questions and, you know, just do one small thing. <laughs> That's awesome. That is amazing advice. And I think I resonate a lot with the advice of, you know, taking the first small step, you know, breaking a big, massive boulder into smaller and smaller boulders and just getting to the first step starts the momentum, starts you on the yeah. path of, of something that, that can be, you know, big and beautiful as, as much as you want it to be. Um, and I think that's great. I think I, I love that advice and something that, you know, I, I believe in, you know, very whole, wholeheartedly. Okay. Final question. Um, any final ask for the audience? Anything you'd like to leave them with before we close? Yeah. You know, this, the theme that we've had today has been, we need more South Asians being involved in politics. Yes. And I would really double down on that. We do, you know, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, please be more involved in politics. Um, please, you know, support candidates like me. And it's so important. And I will say that um, it is so meaningful to me as a South Asian woman, when I have other South Asians uh, who support me either by amplifying what I'm saying, um, sending me an email, you know, talking about how they feel about it, um, donating, please donate to the campaign, not taking corporate PAC money. So every dollar counts volunteering, you know, all of that is really important. Um, 
it is really important to support um, our community. It is really important to support candidates who are trying to do this the right way. Um, and it is really important because at the end of the day, the way we're going to get through this, the way we're going to do the most to help the most amount of people is when we all come together with that optimism that you were talking about, right? We can't be cowering in fear. We need to take back our power and we need to really show who we are as a community. Um, and the, and the, really the only way to do that or one of the best ways of doing that um, is to be more engaged in politics and to not be afraid. So that's what I would awesome. leave you with. Awesome. Well, thank you, Arthi. Thank you for your leadership in this and, you know, your, in, it's, this has been truly inspiring to me as, as someone who has seen this from the, the, the sidelines. And, you know, I wish you all the, the best success and in, in the campaign and beyond. So thank you for being on South Asian Stories. And, you know, I, I'm sure you're going to inspire a ton of people through what you do. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. This is great. <laughs> awesome. Hey guys, it's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time.